Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, one of your top 10 public universities. All right, we're going to talk today about oil, cooking oil, in particular, plenish soybean oil. Now, over the years, we've had a lot of discussion about the different kinds of oils that are used either as cooking, um, I guess you would say substrates, you know, uh, frying your fries or uh, cooking in, in recipes, but also the oils that are used as food ingredients. And we've seen a lot of radical changes since the 1970s. I can remember talking about saturated fat and unsaturated fat and one that's good for you and one that's bad for you, all that kind of rhetoric. And in 19, late 1980s, I was introduced to canola oil, which apparently had a higher monounsaturated profile and less saturated fat. And it really started to show after that a lot of change in the ways that oils were being marketed and the ways that consumers were seeking out oils. Now, in the last couple of years, we've heard a lot about trans fats and heard a lot about the other types of uh modifications that have been made chemically to oil molecules that render them more stable for cooking or maybe as ingredients, but maybe not be the best for human health. Nowadays, it's possible to use genetic engineering to change the plants to have more healthful oil profiles. And today I'm speaking with Kim Nill, Director of Market Development for the Minnesota Soybean Research and Development Council in Minnesota. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Thank you. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you being on. I had the opportunity to engage someone from your organization a few weeks ago online and uh, really realized, well, I mentioned my favorite oil is WD-40 um, <laughs> or Castrol synthetic, and they said, we have to send you some Plenish. And I, you know, it was surprising to me because I've heard a lot about Plenish over the, over the years but actually never actually had a chance to try it or didn't know of its current status. So this is really great that we have time to talk. So when we look at the major plant-derived oils, uh, what are the major ones that are currently being used in food preparation? Worldwide, uh, the two largest oils used for food preparation are soybean oil and palm oil. Uh, Other oils in the list would be corn oil, canola oil, sunflower oil, and uh, olive oil. Okay, olive oil. And then there was also like safflower, which seemed to have come and gone. But then a lot of folks, um, of course, still cook with peanut oil, which is interesting. But uh, nowadays, this huge, uh, anytime you bring up oil, people say, what about coconut oil? Which seemed to be one that years ago was one that they wanted us to get away from. And is that still something that's that's available or being used in a broader context? Yes, and depending on the country that you're referring to, 
you're right. Those lesser oils you mentioned would actually be major oils in some of them. So in the Philippines, coconut oil would be uh, far more commonly used than in America. Uh, safflower oil, is, I think, is available in uh, to the public in Australia. Only minor amounts of things like safflower or flax oil in uh, most uh, other Western countries. And what are the advantages of plant-based oils compared to things like, I, I remember, um, you know, people cooking in lard or any t- other kinds of things like that. Right. And trying to uh, avoid some of the fad, uh, uh, too overly broad sweeping statements that you referred to earlier, I'll try to confine my remarks, you know, appropriately. In general, the advantages of cooking with plant oils over animal oils, again, this is generally speaking, is you tend to have a lower saturated fat content uh, in the plant oils, uh, a uh, uh, blander effect on not as much change to the, the flavor of the underlying food. Uh, and that and nowadays is cited as something that a lot of chefs want. Let the, the food's flavor come through rather than being masked by it. Uh, I've been in overseas countries where I'm in a restaurant and suddenly I, I can tell it was cooked with lard. And it's very distinctive. And it, lard is so rarely used in the U.S. that we sometimes forget how much it masked some of the underlying uh, food flavor. Yeah, I always could pick it out, particularly in Mexican cooking, where they use it uh, as a basis for uh, even like refried beans. You know, the ones that are made with and without lard have a very different flavor and mouthfeel. And uh, I don't know that I necessarily prefer it. But the big problem with that is really saturated fat. And, and so for the audience, what is the difference between saturated fat and unsaturated fat? Sure. And uh, as somebody with a chemistry degree, I can tell you the simple answer, of course, is that uh, saturated fats have no chemical double bonds within their molecular structure. Uh, For more the layman, uh, saturated fats, again, this is not true if they're consumed in, you know, tiny amounts. But if consumed to excess, saturated fats can contribute towards obesity, obesity. even diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Yeah, and so back to the idea from at least the chemical, you know, when you start speaking about the chemistry of this, and again, targeted at kind of maybe the more sophisticated listener who's curious about this, is that, you know, the most fundamental unit of, of the lipid, of a fat molecule, it looks almost like a tadpole with a couple of tails. And those tails have uh, have are made up of carbon atoms that are all held together with either single or double bonds. And it's the uh, a number of double bonds versus uh, the single bonds that may be in different places in that molecule, in that tail, that really dictate whether it's saturated, you know, it's all double bonds, or whether there are some that are not. And it's just that very simple chemistry of the tail of that molecule that changed the way it's metabolized and even its fate inside the body um, and that could have health impacts. So what about monounsaturated fats? How, how do those fit into this? Right. So the, the monounsaturated fat, uh, certainly of, of greatest relevance to this conversation, is uh, the oleic uh, fatty acid, uh, Oleic acid is, uh, uh, just as, as was said, monounsaturated. So in its uh, chemical structure, there's only one double bond. 
This results in it being quite stable to uh, resist uh, breakdown from either high heat, such as in frying, or or oxidation, as in uh, you know foods going stale uh, after they've set out for a while. So. In addition to that, uh, again, uh, in general, uh, when consumed, uh, even in excess, they really don't contribute toward the aforementioned diseases like uh, cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, or diabetes. And, and could you speak a little bit more to the role of fats in food preparation or as an ingredients and the relative stability of the different kinds of oils. I know that when you have a fryer, for instance, that different uh, types of saturation really change its properties in a fryer and the number of times you can use it. Versus, and then also in food itself, like, uh, or I shouldn't just say in food, in any ingredient, even if it's cosmetics or whatever, that they're uh, time before they, in the word that they usually throw out there, go rancid, um, can be related to that kind of oil quality. Can you give us an idea about that? Right. So around the world, there are a lot of erroneous beliefs about uh, shelf life and going rancid, which uh, in general is just oxidation of the double bonds we mentioned. So the uh, if we confine ourselves to the unsaturated fats, uh, as was mentioned, since it only has one double bond in the molecule, oleic acid is the least likely to uh, uh, spoil or break down quickly, whether from heat or oxidation. On the other end of the scale uh, would be linolenic uh, acid, which is present in most plant oils, and that has three double bonds. So it's called an N3 or omega-3 uh, fatty acid. Uh Yes, if you treat it badly, so in other words, if you store it at too high of a temperature or if you uh, uh, expose it to, to sunlight, that you don't keep it in a, uh, the pantry with the door closed, uh, you can have uh, the oils that contain quite a bit of uh, linolenic, the omega-3 I mentioned, uh, go rancid rather quickly. And uh, that's really, though, a thing of the past in the United States. Most uh, uh, food preparers have uh, proper storage now. They know that uh, a bottle of soybean oil, for instance, just like numerous other ingredients they use, should be kept at you know room temperature or maybe slightly cooler in the dark, uh, so that it doesn't you know photo degrade. And uh, that, along with modern refining methods, and uh, at least in my house, we routinely. Uh, have bottles of soybean oil that stay fine for a year when stored in such conditions. Yeah, likewise. We oil lasts a long time by us and uh, in different oils for different applications. And we'll cover that back on the other side of the break. But you mentioned this thing of omega-3. When you talk about plant oils and you hear omega-3, omega-6, omega-9, and even fish oils, what is that omega-3 number referring to again? Again, uh, it's, it's been misused and subject to a lot of fads over the years. So omega-3 refers to fatty acids uh, that chemists call N3 oils uh, because they have three double bonds within the, the, the molecular chain that comprises that fatty acid. So yes, it's slightly more prone to oxidation, but uh, all of these uh, omega-3s or N3s uh, impart health benefits uh, when consumed. 
And so, for instance, linolenic acid, again, present in many of the plant oils, not in any animal oils, uh, is, uh, is an omega-3 that, that you actually can put a heart label uh, health claim on it. So soybean oil in the U.S. can have two different uh, labels approved by the FDA that cite the fact that it's uh, better for you in, when consumed in terms of heart health benefits. Uh, Europe and most other Western nations also allow a health label claim for uh, linolenic acid containing foods. Again, it's subject to, you know, minimum amounts, et cetera. Uh, but I'd like to point out that it's not just the omega-3 content of what you eat uh, all on its own. More important is the ratio. So, for instance, the ratio of uh, uh, the N3 or omega-3 in a given oil to the uh, N2 or uh, uh, linoleic is the most common uh, uh, N2 fatty acid in the U.S. diet. Just as you can imagine from what was discussed earlier, that's because it has two double bonds in, in its fatty acid chain molecular diagram. But the human body can readily convert linolenic uh, into the so-called fish oil fatty acids, DHA and EPA. Uh, but that is, is hindered if there is an excess in the diet of uh, linoleic acid. So uh, unfortunately, in the U.S. diet, we tend to have a ratio of 10 to 1 or, or even higher. And, and that slows down the body's ability to convert linolenic into the, the fish oil fatty acids. But in uh, at least one of the uh, high oleic oils that we're about to talk about in a few minutes, the ratio is actually one to one. And then the body rapidly converts them to the fish oil uh, fatty acids, again, known as DHA or docoso uh, hexanoic acid, EPA, icosa pentanoic acid. So really the thing we want to be shooting for then is finding foods or finding oils that have a higher oleic content because that oleic content is the one that's most convertible to the ones that have the um, ultimately the endpoint health effects inside the body, right? So that's where we step off. Yes. Yeah, so all of the uh, uh, high oleic oils, you, you have a, a concomitant decrease in linoleic content as you increase the oleic content. And that's because they're on the same biochemical syn synthesis pathway within the plant. Oleic, high oleic oils are made by down-regulating the, the desaturase enzyme that, that normally would convert some of the oleic to linoleic, and then that's even further to linolenic. But by down-regulating the, the relevant enzymes, you uh, wind up with a far healthier oil in which uh, much of the linoleic is instead replaced by oleic. And that ratio I mentioned uh, is, is far closer to the ideal, which is four to one or even a smaller ratio. Now, we know you work with the soybean industry and the soybean folks, but if you look across all the oils that are out there from corn and canola, and what are the differences in terms of just has, as they are naturally with that uh, linolenic or linoleic to oleic ratio? And uh, are they all about the same or is there one or the other that gives you a little different profile? Uh, no, they are by no means uh, the same. So, for instance, sunflower oil, has uh, virtually zero uh, linolenic in it. 
corn oil the same, uh, virtually uh, zero linolenic in it. So, so the ratios there are, are, you know, not going to help you as far as getting toward that ideal ratio. Uh, some that naturally contain uh, significant amounts of linolenic are soybean at 8% linolenic and uh, 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 canola at uh, 10 Okay, that really helps a lot in understanding how this can work. So when we get back from the break, we'll talk about how this is done in the modern engineered plants and in the plants that are giving rise to plenish oils. We're speaking with Kim Nill. He's the Director of Market Development at the Minnesota Soybean Research and Development Council. And we'll be back with more Talking Biotech podcast in just a minute. Greetings, Talking Biotech aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Thanks to you. You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer. Shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that Talking Biotech Tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, we're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So, tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, and most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share their expertise here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today we're speaking with Kim Nill. He's the Director of Market Development for the Minnesota Soybean Research and Development Council. And we're talking about the development of hyaluric soybean oils. And it's been an area of interest for me for a long time, because if I have my choice between which oil to choose, choosing the one which may have the best performance in cooking as well as potential health benefits uh, really uh, is is a good move. And so understanding what these are, what these different oils are, uh, is something that all of us should really consider. Now, to get there... There's been some interesting genetic tweaks that have been done in order to get plants that produce the higher oleic oil content. And so if we go, um, uh, first of all, I guess, you know, we, you mentioned before you're at about uh, 8% in soybean. What's the target? Where do you want to be with, uh, with uh, the amount of oleic oil inside that, uh, that content? Well, the answer actually comes down to it depends what you're going to use the oil for. So, for instance, in what we call in the industry salad oils, in other words, uh, just that uh, at a restaurant, for instance, simply uh, sprinkled or dumped onto your salad, depending on your preferences, 
then the answer would be you would want uh, the linolenic, the omega-3 content as high as possible, okay? Uh, so for such a use, conventional soybean oil is great. Uh, uh, because it uh, it doesn't, uh, as I mentioned earlier, doesn't mask the underlying taste of the ingredients of the salad, and it has uh, 8% uh, uh, linolenic uh, content, so a good omega-3 content. Uh, now, if you're intending to do really high heat frying and you don't care uh, about uh, whether you get that golden brown sort of a look and and wonderful taste, as, as in the ideal French fry or fried chicken, uh, then you'd you'd go with something like Plenish, which is seventy five percent oleic content. You're literally going for as high of oleic content and as low just about everything else as possible. Because for potato chips manufacturers, they want heat stability uh, uh, so they can fry at a super high temp and no oxidation risk. I see. I, I might have misspoke earlier then because I said uh, eight, it was at 8% oleic, but uh, it, actually it's 8% linolenic. Is that, was that correct? Yes. Conventional soybean oil is at 8% linolenic. Okay. That, and I, so I made a little bit of a mistake there. So those of you who didn't catch that originally go back and, you know, I, I don't want to fix it because I just spontaneously it shows how confusing this can be. Sure. Now, um, but now we start looking at something like plenish. What uh, was done with the plants to be able to skew their metabolism to produce the higher amounts of the desired uh, oil? Okay, we count at least four different commercialized high oleic soybean oils so far, and uh, they each used a different methodology. In the case of Plenish, they uh, used uh, anti-sense insertion of a gene. It's a relatively older uh, method within biotechnology, but what you then get is co-suppression. So uh, uh, that uh, suppressed the uh, FAD gene uh, that produces the desaturase enzyme I mentioned earlier uh, that thus uh, greatly limits the plant's conversion from oleic to subsequent products, uh, linoleic or linolenic. And that's what elevates uh, the oil in uh, plenish soybeans to up to 75% oleic content versus the normal 23 in conventional soybean oil. I see. So that one's with anti-sense. It's been done in some other ways too, hasn't it? Yes. For instance, uh, a company in Minnesota named Kalixt uh, recently used uh, one of the first gene editing type tools uh, known as uh, Talens. Uh, anyway, in uh, using that, they again downregulated the FAD gene uh, and thus, again, reduced, greatly reduced the amount of desaturase enzyme present. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that because it was a Talon-based gene editing event that was done by Calix, as you mentioned, but with uh, Dan Voitis in uh, episode 108 of the Talking Biotech series, we talked to him about that. And um, it's a good one for folks to go back to if they want more technical uh, background on that particular issue. The nice thing about that one is that there's not a lot of unusual regulatory loops to jump through because it's a, it mimics a natural mutation in the gene. So it allows this high oleic soybean um, without uh, going through a lot of the regulatory mess that you would if you, like they did with the anti-sense, I'm sure. Yes. But, and uh, are there any other ways they've done this other than the anti-sense and tailing? 
Yeah, so uh, University of Missouri, uh, uh, the researchers would have been Grover Shannon and Kristen Bilyeu, uh, did it with conventional plant breeding. And there what they did was they got a, a doubling up of uh, some of the relevant uh, FAD genes uh, in order to, uh, without the use of either gene editing or transgenics, uh, they were able to impart again uh, uh, in the high 70% to almost 80% oleic acid. And that was, uh, again, one that by all definitions is conventional plant breeding developed. Uh, some of the alleles they used were uh, from uh, found in germplasm uh, collections, but they also used at least one that was done via mutagenesis. Well, it's, uh, it's really interesting how that you can get to the same endpoint by all these different roads. And really just thinking about the gene editing one, since that's always a hot topic here on the podcast, how much of the oil comes from gene edited plants? Are those um, widely in distribution at this point? Uh, not yet. So to give you an idea of the relative acreages, during 2018, uh, 350,000 acres of plenish were grown in the Midwestern U.S., and of that, uh, in comparison to that, the Calix gene editing one was at approximately 16,000 acres. It's because of its relative newness. So, for instance, for 2019, uh, Calix predicts it will double the acreage of that soybean. And there's little reason to believe it won't rapidly increase in uh, acreage in the future. Uh, that's really good. I, I've been following them with a lot of excitement because they they were using this, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 steals the show when we talk about gene editing. But here's a great example of this Talon-based approach, which really does, a, you know, a, a comparable job. And I'm really glad that these products are starting to hit the market because it, it really opens the door for a lot more innovation, especially from small companies and uh, universities where we previously couldn't compete in the transgenic part because of the huge amounts of regula regulation we have to deal with. If you look at, um, I guess the next real question for you is if we look across, um, uh, let's just say plenish oil, what is the composition of that with respect to, and you mentioned, you know, the oleic levels are higher and what, what is the exact composition of all of the uh, oils that are present inside that, uh, that particular product? Well, in the plenish soybean, you have uh, 2% linolenic. They greatly reduce that 75 to 76% oleic, 8% uh, linoleic, and then the saturated fat content is uh, 12% versus 15 in conventional soybean oil. So overall, it makes a, a healthier oil. And how about, you know, we, we may have kind of touched on this before, but I'd really like to drive it home, mostly for my own clarification, is how would you expect it to be performed differently? And you mentioned before as a salad oil, um, but how about in frying and things like that? Well, the plenish oil uh, lasts two to three times longer in a restaurant fryer or an industrial fryer uh, than would, for instance, conventional soybean oil. Uh, again, the, the far greater uh, high ole or oleic content of plenish imparts far greater heat resistance. So the oil doesn't, you know, break down and turn a darker color. You don't have that uh, gunky polymer buildup on the equipment. 
uh, and most importantly of all, uh, since you don't have uh, thermal breakdown, uh, the foods coming out of it for, again, that three times longer frying period still have that wonderful taste. And maybe from the standpoint, you know, the, the word sustainability always comes up. If you're able to make your oil last three times longer, are you really looking at a better sustainability? Because that stuff has to be disposed of and you have to grow the plants to make it. So is this really a big step forward in terms of sustainability? Uh, Plenish has been an enormous step forward in sustainability. You're not wasting that massive amount of heat that is lost uh, if you've ever seen it done in the back of a restaurant. They have to turn off the fryer, you know, uh, uh, say once a week when they use other oils, wait for it to cool, you know, then dispose of that oil, which itself, you know, has, has an environmental cost. But the energy is lost. You know, literally, it, you, it, 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 they have to let it cool down so the worker isn't injured. Then they have to spend an hour or so with tools literally chipping that polymerized gunk off of the uh, fryer equipment. All of that is done away with when they switch to plenish soybean oil. You don't have that polymer buildup. Again, you're only shutting it down and replacing the oil one-third as many times. And it's been calculated uh, in a recently published paper. There's a, a, an almost 30% increase uh, in what's called the life cycle assessment efficiency. The, in other words, a reduction of uh, adverse environmental impacts for this switch to uh, plenish high oleic soybean oil. Huh. I, I wish I would have had this back in the 80s when I was dropping chimichangas into a fryer because that cleaning the fryers and all of the grease traps, it was the most disgusting job in a restaurant. And, uh, you know, anything you can do on that uh, front is a big step forward. But what about for farmers? Is this uh, trait or these traits, are they available in different kinds of soybeans that are present around the nation? I mean, there's not, soybean isn't one thing, right? It's many different genetic packages. And what kind of variation is available there? Right. So for the conventional soybeans, to give you a, an idea, over 1,000 different soybean varieties are grown across the United States. They differ by latitude, uh, the d local plant disease challenge, soil type, uh, annual rainfall. Farmers select among those uh, many soybean varieties to, to optimize to their local microclimate and soil conditions. Uh, because it's relatively newer, there are fewer varieties of plenish soybeans out there, but at least 20 are available today. It's grown from uh, Maryland in the east all the way to Nebraska in the west, uh, we are now growing it uh, in the southern half of Minnesota and then all the way down to Missouri. And I guess along the same line, how does that work with on-farm economics? I mean, do the seeds cost more and do they get a premium for it? Or how does that break down? The seeds would cost uh, about the same as, as any other biotech seed that uh, they're going to plant instead. Uh, certainly on the East Coast, uh, they have reported that the yields are as good or better than the other alternative soybean varieties they have. In some of the northern climates, again, they're still working to make the yield comparable, but they're getting close. And then when the time comes to sell it, in general, they get uh, 40 to 50 cent per bushel price premium because there there is additional work involved. The farmer has to very carefully 
plant it separately, grow it separately, deliver it to the crushing facility separately, et cetera. And there are some additional costs to that. But uh, by and large, uh, the, the premiums are enough to more than compensate them for that extra effort. I guess this is maybe a question I should have asked earlier, but we were talking about a plant and you're changing its lipid profile and, you know, lipids are important to organisms. And is this changing the oil production just in the seed, you know, the quality just in the seed, or does this change it in the whole plant? And are there other collateral effects of changing uh, a plant's uh, lipid chemistry? Well, in the case of plenish, we can answer that uh, it's strictly in the seed. And that's because as a transgenic uh, product subject to a lot of regulation, uh, they actually had to assess those very questions. So they know the change was only in the oil, in the seed, the rest of the plant totally uh, unaffected, no, no change in lipid profile. I always love a good biotech innovation, and I love something that can give farmers more choices, maybe higher profits, and can give a better product for consumers, especially in healthful food. And how much has the public got excited about this? And the reason I ask that is because, you know, here I am, a guy who gets excited about such innovations, and I never saw it on my store shelves, you know, kind of figured it wasn't available. And, uh, you know, now we're talking about it. I received a bottle in the mail, and it's real. It's a thing. How much is the public excited about this, and how much has, uh, has, have the relevant companies really played this up? Well, the, uh, the product is still being, you know, introduced, so still being rolled out. Uh, part of the, the effort involved in it was done by the, what's called the United Soybean Board. And this is a, a, a board of farmers that administers sort of a self-imposed tax that soybean farmers in America voted on themselves to promote their products. So they haven't got it to nationwide distribution yet. Uh, but in the Midwest states where it has been distributed, uh, we've certainly seen a lot of excitement here in Minnesota, especially for one fryer restaurants, to name one category. You know, when that fryer is down, you know, to cool off, be degunked and, and, and whatever, they're not making money in a one fryer restaurant. And they are just ecstatic when they see that they can, you know, reduce their, their uh, changeover of oil uh, by two thirds. And so if people do want to try it or do want to, uh, you know, you can order a bottle online apparently, but where can they find it? Uh, yeah, again, the uh, the United Soybean Board and the, the relevant seed company, now known as Corteva, they, they have focused uh, not on the retail sector. Uh, you know, you can argue maybe, maybe they, they should have, but they thought it would be uh, faster and more cost effective to go to like the big fryers like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken or other big restaurant chains. Uh, we up in Minnesota said, hey, you know, can we kind of also, you know, promote it to our local rural restaurants, knowing that, you know, a lot of them have only one fryer. And proportionally, it's actually far more valuable to them economically, uh, you know, than uh, the, the larger chains. And so, so we've been doing that. So it's a little of both. And uh, you haven't seen it in Florida because, well, uh, there's basically not much of a Florida soybean industry, so they don't have somebody like me down there uh, promoting it and carrying it from restaurant to restaurant and trying to sell people on it. 
Yeah, I guess we don't have that, but we got a lot of old people, <laughs> and we have a, uh, and we have this population that's growing by seven thousand people a week, and you have people who are looking at their, you know, their blood chemistries and thinking about the oil they choose, and we're the third largest state, and uh, I, I just in terms of you know, my optics on this from a guy who's been watching biotech for 30 years and, and watching it sometimes fall over its own feet, that, you know, the minute that we can provide something to the consumer that they see the benefit and, and if they can see the frying is better and know that, you know, in their heart, it's something that's working better for them in terms of their health. I think that that is a way to really uh, you know, drive the acceptance of this as a really legitimate way to affect the chemistries that affect our chemistries. And so, you know, I hope to see it available soon. And I think this podcast could generate quite a bit of interest, especially among science enthusiasts. But it, so, so the, it can be purchased online somewhere. I mean, is there is there some sort of a retail face that you could point us to? Uh, yes, they can purchase it at uh, uh, the online store of Minnesota Soybean if they wish. And that web address is mnsoybean.org. Uh, recall that MN is the uh, postal abbreviation for Minnesota. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you or with this kind of a product? Is there you know, maybe an email address that would be particularly good? Uh, yes, they could uh, email me at the address K-I-M as in Mary and then mnsoybean.com. Perfect. So uh, really, really nice. So uh, Kim Nil, uh, you know, this is really exciting and really great to hear about this product. I've had questions about it forever and I really feel like I'm up to speed now. Wow. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And once again, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Tell a friend about the podcast and the innovations we discuss write a review on itunes we've got a lot of them up there and right now when there's so much podcast content available having more good reviews really says we have something going on here that you're finding useful thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you again next week thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast send your suggestions for guests comments or questions to talking biotech at gmail.com Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.